Everybody, it's Larry Wilmore, and this is Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. Welcome back. Always good to be back. Very excited for you to hear today's episode. I'm sitting down with the legendary Katie Couric, someone I've been a fan of for a long time. I used to watch her and Brian Gumbo. I remember, on the Today Show back in the day. Been a fan of hers for years, and I was on her podcast a while ago, and we really hit it off, and I've been aching to have her on. And uh, it was really, really a fun talk. I talked to her a couple of days ago, so can't wait for you guys to hear that. So much going on, guys. Good Lord. The first thing that I want to talk about, and this is all going to be kind of brief today, but the whole Parkland shooting, man, you know, it's so tough seeing these things happen in our society. And there's so much to be said about this. I don't have everything I want to say right now because sometimes it's hard when it's fresh like this, Um, difficult. I've talked about this issue on my show, on the nightly show, several times and just the cycle that we go through. And I have a couple of just quick observations on it. There always seems to be this same argument that goes on all the time that goes in circles and circles, gun control versus mental health and all these things and the right feeling like there's nothing we can do, you know, and the left feeling like, you know, legislation is going to prevent crazy people from doing stuff. You know, this is one of those issues where for me, if you know me, you know that I don't, I certainly don't feel like there's a simple solution to stopping people from doing these things. But at the same time, I feel like we shouldn't stop ourselves from trying something for Christ's sakes. And what's interesting, listening to the the high school students is real interesting to me. It's kind of liberating in a sense because they're not politicians, you know. Some of them may become activists, but they're certainly were not activists. They're high school students. And to hear them to hear it from them, from the people who are actually involved there, for the people who are actually being terrorized, because that's what happens, is you're being terrorized in that situation. It's very interesting, because I think here's what a lot of people miss, I think, especially the people on the right. And I know I go after the people on the right a lot. <laughs> Sorry, man. It's kind of the cultural times that we're in. But when you discount how important the gun issue is, What you fail to realize is how terrorizing guns are. That's what you don't factor. When all you say is it's mental health and it's guns don't kill people, people kill people. Yes, but the gun itself is a weapon of terror. And the effect that it has on people is the effect that terror has. It's a terrorizing weapon, particularly an assault weapon like an AR-15. And the fact that you know If you twitch the wrong way or you move in the wrong direction, you could be dead in an instant. And just the sound of those bullets whizzing through a hallway is life-changing for the people that are not killed. They are never the same afterwards. It's different if somebody had driven a car into the side of the building and killed a couple people. Yes, traumatic, absolutely different. Somebody comes in with a knife. Start stabbing people. Horrible? Absolutely. Can they kill some people? Yes. Is that dangerous? Completely. But it is different. The way that a gun is used as an object of terror is just different, you guys. And there needs to be an acknowledgement of that. And part of the acknowledgement of it is acknowledging that 
we have a deeper problem than just what a gun law can solve. We have a gun culture issue and a killing culture issue in this country that has never been acknowledged. And this is not something that is a result of social media. It's not something that's just a result of mental health. It's not something that's just a result of our current times of being disconnected from each other. We've been celebrating this killing culture since the old days of the Old West, for Christ's sakes. Look at the movies from even the 20s and 30s. Let's go kill up some engines. I mean, people have been shooting up and killing with guns in our culture for a long time. And people's memories are short. You can go to any decade in the last century, and if you look in some newspapers, you will find a lot of these incidents that have just been forgotten, where people have terrorized people with guns and have shot people with guns and have killed people like that. It's just that we keep forgetting about it and we move on. And I acknowledge I'm not stupid. I know just legislation alone is not going to solve it. you know. And I understand that there are people who are unhinged that do these things. But I also know that there are people who know exactly what the fuck they're doing. You know, I don't know what was in the mind of that guy in Las Vegas, but he knew what he knew exactly what the fuck he was doing. You know, um, he figured that shit out to a T. And his goal was to terrorize, not just kill, but to terrorize. And that's exactly what he did. And even the fact that we can't even be honest about this and call it a terror situation, that we just focus that it's guns and it's not terror. Because on the right, you know, Republicans, their panties are all in a bunch when a brown terrorist event happens. Yeah, I'm putting some color in it. This is black on the air, motherfuckers. <laughs> you know, that's instantly a terror event, even if no one gets killed. But, you know, when this happens, suddenly there's we're just helpless, but we're not helpless. So God bless you, kids, man. God bless you, you know. Speak up. Be angry. March. Shout, tell the truth, keep it 100% real. I'm right behind you every step of the way. Yes, are you experts on policy? Of course not. But are you experts on what the fuck just happened to you? Absolutely. So from that point of view, I feel like these kids are worth listening to. What happens afterwards, who knows? You know my feeling on this, anybody that knows me, I feel like there's so much work to be done to stopping this, and it's going to take years and years and years. So anyhow, on a different note, All-Star Weekend was last weekend in basketball. I have to give Shaq some credit, man. Everybody was jumping on Fergie for the national anthem because she kind of made it this sultry thing. You know, and I am not mad at Fergie. I like Fergie a lot. And I was so happy that Shaq came to her defense because she was being, like, mocked and ridiculed. She tried something. She just tried something different. It didn't work out. That's okay, you know. We're so quick to ridicule, like, that type of thing, you know. And people's—I mean, some of the faces of the basketball players was funny. Granted, I mean, that stuff is hilarious. But the piling on on Fergie for trying that, I'm not a fan of, you know. I got to give you props, Fergie, putting it out there. Maybe it didn't work out, but that's all right. I still love you. Yep, I'm a Fergie fan. Sorry. 
because I like the fact that she would just do that. You know, I'm for artists just giving things a shot. It's not like she, she's somebody up there who can't sing. Like when Carl Lewis sang the national anthem, people have been putting that on the internet. He should never have been allowed to do that. I think Roseanne did it right at a Padres game. Should never have been allowed. Fergie is the one who should be up there doing something. You know, and by the way, Marvin Gaye, one of the most famous ones ever, did something with the national anthem that nobody had ever done, and it's still memorable. But the big basketball story or the side basketball story was um, Laura Ingram, who has a show, The Ingram Angle, on Fox. And she's been a conservative commentary for a long time. I've listened to Laura years ago on the radio. She was one of those anti-neocon voices for a long time. And uh, she told LeBron, she was mad that LeBron was speaking about President Trump in a negative way. And she said he should shut up and dribble. And a lot of people were calling her racist and got upset about this and... I talk about this with Katie coming up, too. I have a few thoughts on it. My biggest thing, here's my biggest thing, the shut up and dribble part, you know, whatever. I know she had a book called Shut Up and Sing. I'm aware of that, and she's that's her thing of telling people. But a lot of people on the right, and Laura Ingram is included, they don't understand why you can't say some shit like that to somebody like LeBron James and why it's wrong. You don't get it. And I get it that you don't get it. You think history doesn't exist, and things have no context, and you can just— say things without retribution because you think everything is equal right now and history didn't happen, you know. But there is a—and LeBron has talked about this also. There's been a long history of black athletes speaking up and speaking out for things and being representative of movements. Why? Because they were the people who made it through and were in a place in society where they could have something to say. Not all black athletes did it, but when they did— it made a difference. And as a black person in society, those were the people we looked for, we counted on to say something and to speak up for us. Why? Because nobody else was fucking listening. That's why. LeBron James is in that long tradition of that. Do black athletes have to speak up? No, I don't think so, especially today. But do they have the right to? Of course. And what was he talking about? He wasn't even talking about policy. There's this feeling that if you're not in politics, you can't talk about anything in politics. Well, he wasn't even talking about policy. He was talking about Trump as a leader and the people who he looked up to in his life and the examples that they set. Now, if Laura Ingram is defending Trump as someone to be lionized as a person and to be looked to as an example, what the fuck? Seriously, what? What is this Kool-Aid you guys have brewed for yourself over there at Fox News and on the right? Seriously, you need to examine those cups after you're finished drinking and look at the bottom and look at the residue that's that's piling up on the bottom of those cups because that's some nasty shit, you guys. It's not. This is not on LeBron or the people who are speaking up against Trump as an individual and as a leader. This is on you. You need to look at that. The other part of this, too, is I did not appreciate the fact to shut up and dribble, whatever— but attacking LeBron as dumb, I don't appreciate that shit at all. That's the part that got me. Because that's the insinuation when she said, here's a guy who left high school a year early and we're supposed to listen to him. I'm paraphrasing, of course. What the fuck are you talking about? So what are you saying? We're not. Why are we listening to this dumb nigger? We're not supposed to listen to him? Like, he's not qualified? And yet... Somehow, when we have someone who's immensely qualified and immensely educated 
like the president of the United States, Barack Obama, he's called a community organizer all the time. Like you take his education away from him and his status in in society away from him. It's like niggas can't win. If you follow the American dream and you, you know, you make a life for yourself, you know, that is something that is, a, a you know, the most inexplicable thing in the world. Someone like LeBron James, and you do it without education, you go those routes. If you're a white person, you know, it's the most unbelievable thing. It's the American dream. But if you're a black person, you're just dumb and we shouldn't listen to you. But if you do it the other way, if you are immensely educated, you're the first black person to be president of the Harvard Law Review. You're a constitutional professor. You're a state senator. You're a United States senator and then president. And all the people on the right who didn't like Obama always referred to him as a community organizer. They always stripped away his achievement. And you can listen to any of those people. They always said community organizer. They never said they never went to the job right before, which was U.S. senator or any of the other jobs that had status to him. And I don't like that shit. And to me, that's the shit that's racist. So you can go fuck yourself if you think that's not racist. Sorry. That's how it comes out. You're a dumb nigga if you don't have the education. And even if you do, we're still going to make you a dumb nigga because we're going to take all that status away from you when we're talking about you. That's right. I said it. (laughs) All right. Now I'm getting all riled up. So that's my take on that. You know, LeBron, you keep on speaking up, man, especially when it comes to leadership. Because if anyone, and look, I've talked about LeBron in the basketball sense. I've been on LeBron's case and I'm for him. My feeling about LeBron as just LeBron I have so much respect for LeBron James. You have no idea. The stuff that this guy does in the community and the way that he gives back, to me, qualifies him to talk about anything. Anything. Because he has put his money and his time and his sweat where his mouth is, literally, figuratively, and metaphorically, and culturally. So that's my take on LeBron. You keep going, LeBron. And, Laura, why don't you just shut up and shut up? Hey, how about that? <laughs> that was so stupid. What was, what was that sound? I have no idea. Sorry, guys. I'm getting goofy here. All right. We got Katie Kirk coming up. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation as I did. But first, uh, let's have this quick word. Okay, I am back here with one of my favorite people. She's already laughing. She's This person is charming, even when she's not doing anything. Oh, I'm charming but without I, trying, I know, aren't I, Larry? But I've been a fan for so long, she was so kind of happy in her podcast. The great Katie Kirk, everybody. Woo! I'm black on the air. And the crowd goes wild. I know. Thanks for being uh, my guest. Oh, I'm happy to see you, happy to talk to you. I, I admire you and think you're really smart. Thank you. Back at you. We were having a little conversation. <laughs> it's a mutual about, admiration <laughs> yes, society, exactly. as my that's mom would say. The, that's always the best, though, right? Yeah. Isn't that fun when you're interviewing someone and you're a fan of them? Yes. Doesn't that make a difference? It makes a huge difference. It's much more fun. I think they are much more revealing and comfortable. And, Uh you know, people have always asked me, what's the key to being a good interviewer? And I think part of it is just really actually being genuinely interested, right? Yes. Which you can't really fake. And I think you're more interested in people you like and admire. Yeah, I was... um, 
very fortunate to sit next to the first lady when I did the correspondence dinner, you know, and have right. dinner with her. And I, God, and it's funny, Katie, because that's what I remember the most about that night. Really? Because <laughs> it was such an honor. What was it like? I, well, the night itself is surreal, right. especially if you're a comedian. It's very surreal because you're trying to make people laugh. And very nerve wracking. I imagine you're stressed out by that tremendously. Were you totally pitted out for it the was, whole dinner? Completely. You know, it was like <laughs> it was the worst. It's like Albert Brooks and broadcast news. You yeah, you think sweat. Oh, and you're and you're nervous for a good solid two weeks leading up to it. It's not like just that day. It's it's nerve wracking and. It's the funniest president ever. Right. You know. Right. Like, if there's a Mount Rushmore for funny presidents, it's Obama, and I don't even know if there's anyone else. Maybe Reagan and Kennedy. Now, was it, now <laughs> did you get good reviews? I don't remember. I got mixed reviews because some people loved it and thought it was real daring, and some people thought, what is he doing up there? And because at the end, I did this thing with Obama where I said, you did it, my nigga, you know. People were like, what is he saying? But a lot of people love that moment. But anyhow. It's a very, it's a very tough room. It's a very tough room. Because they're all, most of them are smart. Yes. Most of them are cynical because yes. they've been around for a while. Right. And gosh, I, I'm sure that was that was challenging. It I'm was trying very, to remember if I was there. I don't think I was I there the so. year you did it. But sitting next to the first lady, I was uh, I commented to her how tough it must be when they're doing those picture lines, because I was noticing oh. earlier how they have to, when everyone comes up, it's smiling. Oh, my God. And it's the, you have to put on the charm offensive all the time. You're doing that constantly. And my observation was that it must be exhausting. And I was so surprised by her answer. She said, no, it's the opposite. I love people. Isn't that nice? Yes. And I was so I was so inspired by her comment that she loves people. And so that's the energy that she takes to that. Right. Is her love of people and love meeting people. So it's not a chore for her. She really enjoyed it. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is interesting. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, she's good at it. I I did a picture with them at the, the, I guess, the last White House Christmas party. Yeah. And, or it was some event. I'm trying to remember. I think it was. Yeah, because I brought my husband. And... Uh And they were so nice. And I thought the same thing. I thought, God, they must be exhausted. But they were incredibly charming and and cordial. And what else did you talk about? Did she, was there anything kind of interesting and revealing you can share? I did. Yeah, it's so funny. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny when you're talking to Katie Kirk, you you start becoming interviewed. It's no, interview. I'm, I'm just curious. That I'm not, I promise I won't. I <laughs> no, won't. Uh, no, usurp really, your wherever job. this, the rule of my podcast, wherever it goes, it goes. Okay. You know? Like I jot stuff down just so, just because I'm scatterbrained and I got to have things down. But um, <laughs> uh, what's interesting is that it was kind of an interesting conversation because we talked about everything from our kids. Because I have my uh, daughter was about to start college, I think. At that time, yes. And so was her oldest daughter, but she was going to take a gap year. Right. So, so we're talking about gap years and that kind of stuff. And and we're just talking about our kids and going to school at first, you know. And, and it was just like talking to anybody. So it was – and that was kind of disarming too, you know. And then uh, I asked her if she would ever run for president, you know. And she unequivocally said, not a chance. I mean, you could tell how much she really hates politics. And I could feel how much – like, she does not like what politics does, like, to the family and all that kind of stuff. She's very protective of her Oh, family, I'm sure. And like. I think they've yeah. done an incredible job raising those girls Absolutely. and protecting them. But think about it. I mean, think about the relentless yeah. negativity that you have to endure. I guess at some yeah. point you just completely shut it out. Yeah. But I'm sure that takes a huge toll. Yeah. You have the, the skin you have to have for that. And... 
the, the deflections that you have to do constantly to not only take something personal, but to still be like have that spirit come right, out, right. you know, is the part that is, it takes a superhuman type of uh, abilities. And I think, you know, know. think about And and he was more closed before, um, by the way, actually. Oh, really? Yes. Now, Obama, my observation of Obama, which is interesting. Well, he's an introvert. Well, as charming as he is, he's not, he doesn't seem like he lets you in and uh, you know, he's more discriminating. Yes. You know, he has more of a shield where she's very open. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting where she doesn't have that barrier. You know, you could tell you felt like you were really talking to her with Obama. You felt like you were talking, well, of course, to the president. Right. <laughs> you know, of course. Right. I mean, that goes without saying. But there's definitely a wall there. And I get it, too. I mean, he is the president. There has to be somewhat of a wall. But well, I, some people, I think, personality I think wise, it's a are personality just like it. And I, I, you know, my late husband was like that. Yeah. He was very... Um, incredibly outgoing once he got to know you and yeah. felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. But he was much more discerning than yeah. I was. You know, my mom used I'm to like say that, I was actually. like a puppy that yeah. I would just go up to anyone yeah. and jump in their lap and slobber <laughs> all over them. Right. And but but I kind of admire people who, while they're not cold, are mm-hmm. have that scintilla of standoffishness. Yes. Because I don't know. You have to kind of win them over. Yeah. I, I've always. It's a challenge. I've always been kind of like that. And some people think, like, I don't know. I've had so many people guess things about me because when I don't know you, I'm not very forthcoming. Right. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like that, you know, because I'm, I'm an observer. Maybe it's because I'm a writer. Or I whatever. like that, though, because in know. this day and age where, you you know, just the, the whole trend is complete oversharing. I know. It's nice it really when is. people keep a little something for I themselves. Think so. I think so. I wish I were more like that. Well, what was it that drove you initially into journalism? Was it the fact that you were that puppy that wanted to? I think to? so. Was it really? I mean, you were I, interested I, in I, people or I stories? or Both, I think. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh, I'm very much like Michelle Obama. I really mm-hmm. love, I'm not a good solitary person. I uh-huh. wish I were better at that, too. You're a social person. I'm a very social uh-huh. person. I really thrive on the energy of people around me. I mm-hmm. kind of like controlled chaos or even uncontrolled chaos. Is that chaos. What the definition of an, you know how they define extrovert and introvert recently? Yeah. Where they talked about one of them, I don't know which one, but thrives on the energy of other people. Is that extrovert? I don't know. It's interesting. I, 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 I'm an I'm not an energy sucker, I'm, right. but so maybe I don't know. But you like whether, that energy of being I like, around, and, and I like. I like giving energy and getting energy. Suddenly I found, yes. I, I sound like what's that woman, Marianne Williams, or whatever her name is. But anyway, <laughs> right. um, so I I also like. I'm very curious. I'm interested mm-hmm. in people. Yeah. I think. You know, the one thing I have is high emotional intelligence. I what think do you I'm mean by good. that? Well, I think I'm good at reading a room. I think uh-huh. I'm fairly good at sensing uh, sort of how other people are feeling and reacting. Mm-hmm. I think I'm pretty empathetic. Okay. So I think all those things contributed to me wanting to be out in the world, telling mm-hmm. stories, learning from people, relating to them, having mm-hmm. them share stuff with me. Right. Getting people um, to open up. Do you think? Do you think that if you're going to choose one of those qualities as a journalist, especially someone starting out, do you think empathy is probably the best trait you can have? I like, think it's kind of an interesting combination of being empathetic and analytic, mm-hmm. right? And and curious, maybe curious, curious, but also, I I think a little questioning, skeptical, mm-hmm. right? I think mm-hmm. I'm probably stronger in the empathy, curious 
buckets than yeah. I am on the questioning cynical buckets. Yeah. Um, so I think if you have a combination of both of those things, it's really good. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of it is, is also the art of persuasion. How can you kind of get people to feel comfortable, to give you information, to mm-hmm. share with you, to put get their guard down in a way that sounds right now incredibly manipulative, yeah. but it's also just, I think, a quality of, of, of getting people to trust you and feel comfortable around you. I remember one of my first mm-hmm. stories when I was a local reporter, Larry, I had to go to these people's house and... their daughter had just been killed and it was so heartbreaking Mm. in this really freak accident involving like a dump truck and she and her best friend, they were in high school and it was just so upsetting. Mm -hmm. And I remember knocking on the door. It was in a Maryland suburb. I was working in local news in Washington and talking to the mom and somehow she gave me photographs of her daughter in this worst possible time. You can't even imagine, I'm sure, mm-hmm. how I, I there are no words to really describe that kind of grief and shock. And I remember thinking that, you know, I've been in a lot of situations like that through the years where mm-hmm. people are dealing with unspeakable grief and why they share things about their loved ones. And in Mm. a way, I think it validates the life lost. But I think you have to have a certain kind of compassion and empathy Mm -hmm. to have people open up to you and trust you in a way that you will honor them in the act of doing that. Because that would be the the controversial part. Some people, like there's that line that you have to be so respectful of, of not to be exploitive of their pain. You know, but their pain can be instructive to the rest of us. And actually, yeah. um, in a way, sharing it can actually, I think, be healing for people. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting kind of. I always thought it would be mm-hmm. an interesting thesis for someone who was studying psychology yeah. to talk about kind of the public display of of pain and sorrow mm-hmm. and what motivates people and where that comes from and Mm -hmm. the reaction people have to it. Why do you think that we're so interested in hearing a person's explanation of their pain when an event happens? Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is um, there but for the grace of God go I. Mm -hmm. I think that somehow it it perhaps makes people feel safer and a sense of relief Mm -hmm. that this horrible thing didn't happen to them. I also think it reflects kind of the goodness in people that they want to, you know, be comforting. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that's a way to be, I don't know, maybe there's a certain amount of virtual comfort that comes Mm -hmm. from hearing people and, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's interesting. Um, it's funny. I, I never really considered history too much growing up. But as you get older, I start to love history more. Right. And what I find fascinating about history is firsthand accounts of things are interesting to me because they have emotions attached to them as opposed to observations of history. Right. You know, like um, if you hear people in the moment 
reacting to Pearl Harbor and you hear anger in their voices where you knew before that America was very noncommittal to being in a war and how that galvanized people. But when you just hear we were attacked and we went right. into war, it doesn't have the same meaning. And like when you look at the um, the event that just happened in Parkland with these students, it's their testimonials that make the event even more just, I don't know, Harrow, not just harrowing, but binding in a certain way where we're connected to it. You know, I was talking to Mark Barden last night mm-hmm. because someone reached out to me uh, who is related to one of the moms mm-hmm. who lost their daughter, her daughter, and and we were saying that Mark's son Daniel was killed at Sandy Hook and. Mm. Mark has become a friend, and we were saying, you know, he he was talking about, you can imagine what an incident like this does Mm -hmm. to a family who's experienced it before. It just reopens so much pain. Yeah. And, but we were saying that these kids have been really inspiring and remarkable Mm -hmm. in terms of their reaction. And we were comparing it and saying that these high school students you know, they're old enough to speak out, to use social media, and they're they're young enough to still uh, to to be idealistic mm-hmm. that they can change things. Right. And it's it's been for me just incredibly moving yeah. to watch them where you think of, you know, we're comparing it to these little first and second graders mm. and they're grief-stricken families, and even though the families of Sandy Hook tried to advance legislation and change things and, you know, are making some progress on a state level, Mm -hmm. they didn't have—tragically, you know, these high school students seem to be in this sweet spot of really— talking about these issues and then their outrage is so palpable and their anger is so raw and their desire to change things is so inspiring. I've been, I've been really marveling at that. Yeah. I've always felt that um, many times people are most eloquent during traumatic events. And I think it's because many times a traumatic event will give you clarity Right. You know, it well, makes it strips away everything, doesn't yes, it? Yes, all artifice and it makes you very clear about things. And and these young people are so <laughs> inspiring to me. I I'm emotional right now because they make me emotional when I when I hear their cries because their eloquence is what touches me. Is they're so clear about what the real issues are that their lives are being almost like a political ball right now, you know. Yeah, and you you kind of contrast them with the people who have been, you know, bought and sold by the NRA and so um, warped in their perspective and so, um, I don't know, narrow-minded and Mm -hmm. unopened to even a conversation. And you contrast that with these 16, 17-year-old kids. I mean, these kids were like 14 it's, years no, old. It's it is It is sickening. Yeah. And, um, you know, I do think there are so many issues. There's so much alienation, mm-hmm. you know, but access to guns is certainly a very key component to this, easy access to guns. And, 
you know, for people to say it's just a mental health issue or mm-hmm. it's just this or just that, it's, you know, at, at the very core of it, it's it's easy access to guns, but all these other things also need to be paid attention to yeah. this, you know, you, this this loneliness and you you think about how connected people are through technology and yet yeah. they're so isolated. Mm-hmm. And I think that that there needs to be a reckoning of how we're how kids are living and being raised. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very interested in technology. I'm doing this series for National Geographic yeah. and one of them is on is technology making us lose our humanity? Mm-hmm. That's and very I think nobody subject, nobody is is taking time to take a step back. I think we're hearing it increasingly, like with uh, you know people talking about the big tech companies. But to really say, you know, what is happening to our social fabric? What is happening to our relationships? What mm-hmm. is happening to our culture and to our values? And, um, you know, it's just something that I think people need to think about and focus on and mm-hmm. not just kind of, let it slip, you know, slide by. Do you think that the more we're connected electronically, the more we're separated emotionally? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you look at the statistics, Jean Twenge, who I interviewed for this podcast, mm-hmm. um, who I really admire. She's a very smart sociologist. And, you know, the, the teenage suicides among 10 to 14-year-old girls have like tripled in the Good last Lord. five or 10 years. And among and, girls. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the social pressure, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's magnified is, by social media. Oh, my media. God. Well, yeah. you know, listen, I mean, this, this is a, a kind of a, a talking point that we've heard again and again. But when you and I, Larry, were in high school yeah. and somebody didn't like us or we didn't get invited to a party, we might hear about it on Monday, that day yeah. in school, our feelings might be hurt. Right. But now it is so in your face and the kind of the cultural, the social rejection or the social acceptance and what you have to do and how you get judged yeah. and how you have to kind of uh, present yourself mm-hmm. and all the apps that make you skinnier and make you, yes. you know, younger, prettier, know. Or whatever, better, this or that. And people taking pictures of their food. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, listen, makes... I'm, I'm guilty of it. I, <laughs> yes. I, I enjoy kind of being right. on social media. But I think about if I were an impressionable 13 year old yes. who wanted to be popular and liked and be with the in crowd and, you know, not be victimized by mean girls or any of the above. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a lot of pressure, and they're so addicted mm-hmm. to their phones. It's people are spending less time actually together face to face. Fewer teenagers are getting their driver's license, yeah, because they don't really need them, right. you know. And and they're not doing after school jobs. They're not. I mean, their depression and anxiety has increased dramatically. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that it's not a wonderful thing in many ways, but mm-hmm. I think it's sort of, you know, buyer beware. And we have to be yeah. cognizant of the negative impact it of these things. It almost has a pornographic effect. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, well, you do get addicted. Yes. And then there's also a numbing out of something else, you know. Right. Where well, the, look, you know, like yeah. you and I are looking at each other. Yeah. So I can see how you're reacting to what I'm saying. Sure. I mean, you know, modeling is one of the earliest skills you get taught as an infant. You model, Absolutely. model like, empathy expressions from your parent. Right. 
And, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting, there's a huge word gap between children of children of means and children of poverty when it Mm -hmm. comes to vocabulary. I think this study has been sort of questioned, but I think I believe it's 30 million words, a difference of a vocabulary by the time you're like four years old. I I, should look it up and make sure it's right. But I've often wondered if... Now I see women, you know, with their babies in the playground or toddlers and young children Mm -hmm. or, you know, strolling with with strollers. And they are so transfixed by their phones. I think that probably there's a lot less interaction Mm. between parents and their children modeling that, teaching them words looking at the world around them, interacting with things and people that I would not be surprised to see that gap in vocabulary actually shrink Mm -hmm. as people become more, more focused on their phones. You mean shrink in a bad way? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that even, you know, first of all, I know they're trying, there are a lot of programs where people go to lower income homes and really encourage moms to interact with their kids, to read to them, to help them Mm -hmm. to close that gap. But what I think is the, you know, higher socioeconomic levels are going to decrease Mm -hmm. the vocabulary of their children because they're not interacting with them as as frequently as they once did. Well, you know, it's interesting to me, like this is um, some of the nerdy stuff that I engage in sometimes because sometimes I have too much free time in my hands. But I've been playing around with uh, just reclassifying what even our class systems are because I think it's always been um, separated by income, but I think we're different now. Like... Low, low, middle, and upper only talks about how much money people make. It really doesn't talk about our society right now. Like, for instance, I think there's an educated class. You know, people that are in the class of education, some of those people are poor, some of those people are middle class, some of those people are upper class, but it's a class, you know, because that's Definitely. it's their value system, you know. And, that, and it doesn't matter, like, if those people don't have as much money— because that value system is in there and, and there's a way that they break out of that economic class through the right. education. Right. Well, I think room. it's about status, right? right? And the status is based on the amount of education, yes. which is so interesting. And <clears throat> another thing that it I'm doing— It also creates elite pockets oh, as yeah. well, which oh, is yeah. a negative side of it as well. Oh, definitely. You know, you know I'm right. doing an hour on white working class people, sort of mm-hmm. what is eating them and yes. what is at the root of some of this, this division in this mm-hmm. country. And— there definitely is sort of this cultural condes- condes- condescension. Condescension. Yeah, I was thinking mm-hmm. condensation, yes. condescension. They're very and, close, and, <laughs> and, and, and it's so interesting. Somebody wrote a book. I read a lot about books, and then I don't read the book, but I know yes. about them. Yes, And there is a book that, called yeah. The End of Expertise that oh, came out in the last six, six months. I think yeah. that's what it's called. I'm going to have to Google all this stuff I for love your titles, listeners. I love titles, by the way. I'm a huge but, title but, person. But, but it's really fascinating where there is such a reverse snobism for mm-hmm. educated people. Yes. And and you saw that in Brexit, where nobody really mm-hmm. listened to experts. Yeah. And there's such a, a negative perception of people who are educated by people who have less education. And I was mm-hmm. surprised to read that two-thirds of Americans do not have a college degree. Yeah. That's incredible. Right. And I think you travel in certain circles and you think that just could not be true. Yeah. But it is. And I think there is such a divide and there's so much distrust mm-hmm. and generalizations made 
about educated and people who do, and and those who don't have a college degree yeah. that it creates so much tension and yeah. conflict. Well, there's been a cultural attack on education. Well, like for instance, part of the attack on education and the, and the educated class has come from the right over the past 20 years. And part of that attack is based on the belief that much of the teaching is leftist teaching mm-hmm. and not education, but even though some of that attack may have had, you know, sound footing in the beginning, as with any kind of movement, it gets overdone. And, right. and it became a snobbery towards education and higher education. Right. Especially and colleges class. and political yes. correctness has been weaponized. Yes. And so then there's the, the you will exalt a Joe the plumber rather than a Joe the professor. Right. You know, like right. Joe the professor is somehow not qualified to talk about something, but Joe the plumber is. Now, I understand the other argument on that, of course. Everybody has a voice in something, but it doesn't mean we have to discount Joe the professor. Right, right. <laughs> you know, just because Joe the plumber is making a point, too, you know, like both of those are valid. You know. I think, you know, again, I've been thinking about all these issues because I'm also doing an hour <clears throat> on this sort of new vernacular, political correctness, safe spaces, mm-hmm. cultural appropriation. Yes. Because I think it's, you know, it, it. I think it's seen in very black and white terms mm-hmm. by observers. And I think it's much more nuanced and complicated than that. Absolutely. And so I've been trying to kind of explore this whole arena. And, you know, you do wonder in some cases if sensitivity is leading to censorship or a kind of silencing of mm-hmm. different opinions because... And that's coming from the left. Yes, because right. I think there is a certain amount of groupthink and mm-hmm. that if you don't ascribe to a certain ideology or, you know, or if you even question mm-hmm. certain things, you're immediately, there's this sort of mob mentality that Completely. I think is exacerbated on social media yeah. that is kind of a precluding us from having some tough conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of interesting. Why do, you, why do you think the left has gotten so sensitive around speech? What, mean, I, what do you mean sensitive around speech? Well, I oh, think... you mean hate speech? No, and, just speech. Speech. Um, well, sometimes it's called... You mean like no platforming where people get disinvited to colleges? Speech that they disagree with. Yeah, all of that stuff yeah. you know, has come from the left, really not from well, the right. Well, you know, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about mm-hmm. it because I think... I think that it, you know, I think that some things it we feel. I feel like we're living in such an extreme mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. right? That that people are, you know, on the fringes, so extreme, and that that's when problems are created. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that Charles Murray. You know, you can have a lot of issues mm-hmm. with some of his writings in the past. He's also written pretty eloquently Mm -hmm. on working class. I liked his book, Coming Apart, which uh, talks about, uh, it actually, he focuses on some of the the, uh, white middle class and what has happened in some of those areas. I thought it was a fascinating book, actually. Right, but he's also done some very controversial things. The bell curve, people weren't very happy with. Exactly. And, um, you know, he, they've been, there have been protests when he's gone mm-hmm. to speak at schools. Yeah. And he's hardly you know, a revolutionary well, for you know, all right I sort movement. of feel like, you know, <laughs> there are certain people that I would not want to come to my college, yes. like Richard Spencer and who's of the course. other guy, the, um, Milo. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I told him to go fuck himself on Bill Meyer. You so, did? Yes. 
I mean, I think I guess well, he's he insulted a, me. He's, so I'm a comedian. Yeah, yeah, I have to defend yeah, myself. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he's a professional provo- provocateur. Yeah. but but mm. you know, I do. Yeah, he's not really a thinker like some of the other people. Right, right. right. So mm. I think that you know, then I you see people like. Condoleezza Rice being disinvited or James Comey being interrupted at Howard. I think people were turning their back on him and booing him and he couldn't speak. And I don't know. I feel like. um, Where do you think that's coming from? The like, in other words, the intolerance of that. I don't I don't get the intolerance of like, I understand if people aren't don't like that person. Right. Or have an issue. Yeah, Let's say they want to protest outside of it. But Mm -hmm. to stop the people from speaking is the part that I don't get. Um, like, why would you stop Condoleezza Rice? This is the former. Someone told me that National they believe Security she was a Advisor, war criminal. Of State. Uh, you know, uh, which I thought was interesting. You know, and I was listening to their uh, rationale for calling her that. I, I think that I don't know. Civility is really being challenged in our culture, and mm-hmm. I think part of it is it's bled over from your ability to say anything you want mm-hmm. to be insulting. You know, I just think that good manners have kind of don't mean to sound like the ch- a church lady, but have kind of gone by the wayside. Well, and I think, you know, yeah. there is something powerful about being able to express yourself and have some of these principled views. On the other hand, if it completely negates your ability to listen or to entertain a different point of view, that's mm-hmm. when I think it's really damaging. Well, it seems like a cultural shift, though, in what we consider acceptable, tolerable, and what we're not going to stand for. Like, I'll give another old geezer example (laughs) from an age group. This is a very old geezer example, so I apologize to my younger audience. But when I was a kid, the biggest saying was sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but... uh, Will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words will never hurt me. And now words are the only thing that seems to hurt people. It's the thing that hurts people the most, you know, and it seemed like... Well, everything's become weaponized, hasn't it? Yes, and it may be social media. It may be the era that we live in that words have... It feels to me that words have too much power in hurting people, it seems like. In real damage. We're like, what just happened in Parkland? That's not words. That's that's actions, you know, mm-hmm. that do, that did some real damage. Well, you know, you I know? think it's, it's also become so personal. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that people don't argue things on the merits. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have phys- uh, uh, philosophical conversations about yes. policy and attitudes. But it's all very, very, you know... Straight to yes, the heart yeah. with the most hurtful thing yeah. you can possibly say. Right. Instead of, you know, having an actual conversation right. that's respectable and respectful. Yes. And um, yeah, it's it's you know it's it is a cultural shift and it's it's discouraging. And I we're think. in an insulting culture also. Yeah, I agree. You know, and that to me, I don't understand it. Like um. LeBron James, who is... Oh, my God, uh, I watched that whole thing. Yes, he's inarguably the greatest player of our time right now, right? And also LeBron James is a transcendent figure for his fans because he's done so much in his community. Hasn't he given, like, something like $41 million? It's ridiculous. Katie, it's ridiculous what LeBron James... He needs to not... He he doesn't owe anyone an apology for what he's done both on and off the court, right? He's, He's one of those people... He... He lives and breathes the type of example we want our sports figures to be, you know. And he was talking about the president in this thing with right, Kerry Champion. Right. But he was he was speaking about the president 
um, in the context of leadership, not in terms of policy and politics and Democrat, Republican, not in those terms, you know, because, um, you know, LeBron James doesn't have enough time for partisan politics. He's not he's not into that. But he was speaking about how when he was right, a as kid, a role model. yes, the people he looked up to. And as a kid for him, it was president, sports figure, entertainer. Like that was right. as, a, as a kid for him. He was hoping those people would say the right things and be the people you look for. And he expressed his disappointment that the president wasn't that for him. And then he's attacked by Laura Ingram, of all people. On her show, and the way, the manner of her attack is what really disappointed me. Because Laura Ingram, she's not unintelligent, you know. She's been in this game for a long time. She's not a rookie. She's had a a radio show for years and years. She was one of the voices that spoke out against a lot of the neocon movement, in fact, in the early odds. You know, she... She wasn't always a strict party person. She she even spoke against her party. So she's she's had political integrity, you know. So why does she have to say things like, this is a guy who decides to leave high school year early, which isn't true. He finished high school and is attacking him like he's not intelligent, like his not going to college, we like disqualifies him. And the shut up and dribble part is just a ridiculous but to insult LeBron James, why are you insulting him? He's not even talking about you. Like, why can't we, why can't that his message just be embraced or just ignored? Why does he have to yeah, be insulted? I, I think it was sort of mm-hmm. the, how um, demeaning her comments were yes. that, that, that felt, it just felt, uh, it just. But why do just you have to insult it, him? Yes. Why do you um, have to demean and insult? I think because, right. as you said, we live in a culture that there's so much, so much intense animosity mm-hmm. that it's almost a tribal thing. It's yes. almost like I feel yes, I feel good. This guy is wealthy. He, you know, in their view, is disrespecting mm-hmm. someone they like. And it has become such an us-them mentality. And I I was really upset by that, too. I yeah. watched it. I it felt like, you know, and she she went on the next night and, and talked about how she wasn't a racist. But it did feel very—they they felt like unmistakable racial undertones or overtones mm-hmm. or both. And— you know, I sort of... And I'll be generous. I'm like, Laura, if you don't understand why that has racial implications, you need to do your homework. And I won't even call you a racist for it, but you need to know why that's not right. Because you need to look at the person who you're saying that to. And LeBron James said, Jesse, you would never tell Jesse Owens to say, you know, shut up and triple jump, you know, or Jackie Robinson to say, shut up and steal bases, you know. <laughs> so well, what I thought was ironic, too. I, what I thought mm-hmm. was ironic, you know, she, I guess she wrote a book called Shut Up and yeah, Sing. Shut up and, and sing. so she was it, rationalizing was the, uh, it that chips. way. Right. And I think that um, what was really interesting is the idea that, LeBron James cannot use his voice and express mm-hmm. his opinion is so, I think, un-American. And I think somebody put together all the Fox, uh, all the people who are not in politics, speaking mm-hmm. about politics on Fox News, right. from Fabio to Gene Simmons. To Ted to, Nugent. Uh, to right. Ted Nugent. To yes. a, lo- a lot of people. 
And so if you're going to really feel that you have to be in the political sphere in order to express your opinion about the country, then that's so hypocritical when you look at the Donald people Trump that have been on was Fox. a contributor to Fox for yeah, years so I, I when was he was doing the birther movement. Because I think you're mm-hmm. right. I think Laura Ingram is... Um, is highly educated. She went to UVA law school yeah. and uh, that's what I you mean. Know, She's she better wants than that. to, if she wants to, you know, obviously has very specific views on things, but I felt like that was such a low blow and so below the belt. And I, I, I was disappointed too. And, um, you know, I think, but it, I think it speaks to what you were saying. We live in a culture of insults and mm-hmm. of, of meanness. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know how we bring back mm-hmm. civility and hmm. being able to disagree where someone comes from politically or their point of view and bring back that empathy and bring back an ability to have a respectful conversation. It's We're so bifurcated. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine said, you know, people seek affirmation, not information. And I I was in San Francisco and I decided I wanted to check out what Sean Hannity and Laura Mm -hmm. Ingram were talking about and understand their point of view. And you can see why they're two Americas because they're two different points of view that Mm -hmm. are just completely opposite each other. And no wonder never the twain shall meet, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, as a joke, I used to say, okay, I disrespectfully disagree with you. I used to say that <laughs> as a joke, you know? And in fact, Saturday Night Live in the early days. Uh, Shane, you impudent yes, slut. Yes, Jane, you ignorant slut. Yeah, That's exactly Jane, what I was yeah. thinking. Yes. It was based on Shane Alexander yeah. and Jack Kirkpatrick, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. But Jane, you ignorant slut is <laughs> the id of what we're yes, in right it's now. it's true. We have all know. become you know, those people. Yes. It was Dan Aykroyd and uh, Jane and Curtin, Curtin, right? Yes, right. We we're, are definitely showing our We're age Jane later. ignorant slutting all of America <laughs> yeah. right now is what we're doing. It's really interesting. It is interesting. Um, but, but you know, it, I, I think it'll be, I wonder how that whole LeBron James thing will shake out. Well, um, I don't know if it's going to have much impact or it's going to go much further than it is because LeBron actually did take the high road in it, you know, yeah. and and defended himself at the same time. But um, I I don't, yeah, there's so much about that that I just don't like at all that speaks to where we are. And it's funny because I want to pivot to the Me Too movement, which is, which is having, I'm curious to see if it's going to be pivoting or if it's going to keep where it's at right now. Would you have a take on that? Like where we're at, because I mean, for you, especially in your career, I mean, you're one of those people that I'm sure you've seen everything in terms of what this movement is talking about. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. interesting, Larry, because or maybe you haven't. I, I, ha- I actually haven't uh-huh. as much as people might think. Um, yeah. I've been very lucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had a couple of experiences early in my career mm-hmm. where people said inappropriate things to me. And in retrospect, you know, uh, somebody, you know, asked me out, which mm-hmm. I think in today's culture would be considered an abuse of power, mm-hmm. you know. Someone um, you were working with. Yes, yeah, someone mm-hmm. I was working right. with when I was actually a, a college intern. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was an employee and a pretty high profile employee. But mm-hmm. um, I've been I've been actually quite fortunate. You know, some mm-hmm. of it, I think I, you know, when you're a frog in water that starts mm-hmm. to boil, you kind of don't notice it mm-hmm. uh, at, through the years. But mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a really important moment. I think like a lot of social movements, it, right. it feels 
extremely intense yeah, it is. right now. And I think that, um, you know, things will calibrate. What my hope is that that it will move from understandable anger and frustration and outrage mm-hmm. uh, on the part of a lot of people who have been mistreated yeah. to concrete changes mm-hmm. and and an open dialogue right so people can learn together and grow together that sounds very woo woo but you know what i mean sure. and and feel comfortable in asking dumb questions mm-hmm. comfortable in and in in sort of shifting their their point of view or their mm-hmm. mindset do you think it'll have a real effect on men in the workplace as I would think is the intent for it to have. Do you think? I think it should have an effect on everyone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but particularly I think some of these male dominated um, professions and, and what I'm really hopeful, you know, I think for women in my position, Mm -hmm. even when I was starting out, you know, I had the agency as my daughters would say, to be able to stand up for myself and say, I'm sorry, I don't feel comfortable or you can't do that. But not everyone has the constitution or actually the safety net to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, if I got in a situation- What do you think gave you that fortitude? I don't know. Do you think it was cultural? Was it your parents? I think probably my parents. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is my DNA. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think part of it is, you know, having very clear ideas of, how I wanted to conduct myself through my life, right. you know, um, I'm kind of, I don't know. I just, I have a certain kind of value system, I guess that does come from my parents mm-hmm. and a very clear sense, I think of right and wrong and a very, uh, strong sense of self. Right. That's probably and, the, the biggest component mm-hmm. of not feeling that something in you is being chipped away if you speak up or, or that it's a comment on you or or that you have less of a value because you need to have a voice. Like right. voice and value have always been connected in a way. But that's a real privilege. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it, you have. Absolutely. You know, I think that I, I was in a position where my parents, while not wealthy, mm-hmm. would, you know, if I ever ran into a problem or got into a bind mm-hmm. that I could turn to them. Right. You know, there, I think, and I want my daughters to be strong and, you know, not tolerate certain behavior and stand up for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard, you know, and not everyone actually has that inner strength. But it's for the, for people who cannot afford to be strong, Mm -hmm. you know, cannot afford to stand up. That's where I hope this movement really impacts them. Women who are raising children, working three jobs, who would really be up a creek without a paddle Mm -hmm. if something happened to their employment and who don't have these opportunities. Their job is being leveraged in that that equation. And they literally cannot afford sometimes to make a stink. Right. And so that's where I really hope this kind of, the, the, it has a trickle down effect mm-hmm. throughout the culture. And that, you know, I, I want to, I want to work with men and women, you know, and mm-hmm. I want not to get all Rodney King, but you know, <laughs> I want to get along and I want to yeah. let people kind of um, contribute all the great things that each of us individually can 
And so um, I'm looking forward to hoping, hopefully making it facilitating a conversation. Now, some things are just wrong and, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, whack, whack, get over it. Like, I'm sorry, you know, that's unacceptable mm-hmm. in terms of men questioning certain things. But other things I think are more in, in sort of this gray area. Shades, shades of gray a little bit. Right. And, but I also think that real policies have to be implemented at these companies. Like I was thinking about HR, you know, I've obviously talked to a lot of people about this and, you know, you have to feel like the human resources department really is on your side, that they're yeah. not trying to make sure that, you know, some uh, an employee who complains is, isn't is litigious or they're not protecting, mm-hmm. you know, the status quo. But well, they're, the they're kind of fair and, and um, honest brokers in all this. And I, sometimes I think there should be a separate HR department right. that's not necessarily affiliated with the company or paid completely for like by, an independent yeah. arbitrator. Like that was the issue at Fox News, where or even at the Weinstein Company, you know, where <laughs> HR was a meaningless uh, place because they were always in the service, like of Roger Ailes. Well, Fox they don't want to kill and, the goose that lays the golden egg, right? right? Their paycheck, right? And um, mm-hmm. I think that really makes things very complicated mm-hmm. and and sticky. And so I, I, I'm hoping that we, you know, people will have these conversations. Yeah. And and I think it's it's hard because I think for so many people, their social lives revolve around their work. You know, mm-hmm. that's their whole life. Lives. Yes, and, absolutely. And, it's a very important so, part of people's lives. You know, yeah. and so what about fraternization and you know, gosh, I've worked at so many places where married men have had affairs with people and how that changes the dynamic of a company, mm-hmm. you know, and, and is that is that kosher? I don't know. To me, mm-hmm. maybe not. Or should you change departments? I mean, I know that a mm. lot of people do have policies surrounding this, but a lot of people don't, right? It's kind of like... yeah. Depends on the not place. really, not really. I think there's not a lot of oversight at a lot of places. Mm-hmm. What was it? What was it like when you heard about the uh, Matt Lauer um, situation? Today show, were, were you like the other people there? Just really, what, what were your emotions like when that came out? It was very upsetting. You mm-hmm. know, uh, Matt and I because you guys had a great relationship. Yeah. You know, I think, <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, I'm very fond of Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was there when my husband died. Yeah. He was there, you know, during, you know, when I would get dumped by a guy and be <laughs> upset or when my sister got sick mm-hmm. and knew my children. And, uh, you know, we did not socialize together. You know, mm-hmm. we had a, a very warm professional relationship. I think that this mm-hmm. whole concept of America's first family, everybody thought like we got on a bus and, you know, went to camp after right. the show was over. <laughs> But, um, you know, I think it was it was upsetting. And mm-hmm. clearly, I think some of the behavior there was unacceptable. Mm. Um, I don't know all the details. And, um, you know, it was just it was it was very sad. Yeah. And um, I think what's been interesting to see is this whole notion of consensual, you know, I understand when there's a power dynamic, as I said, even, you know, when I think Mm retrospective, retroactively at some of my experiences, um, when I was much, much younger, how that would not be acceptable now. Mm. But I think that 
things change so quickly and an abuse of power is an abuse of power and I'm not defending it at all. But I think the definition of some of these things has really been altered and as being thought of in a very different way. Mm -hmm. I think appropriately so, but I think, you know, in this case, it's, it, it was difficult. Yeah, it must be. Um, well, um, are you going back to close the Olympics? Or? No, no, <laughs> just the opening ceremony. That it was great. Fun. It was and nice Mike seeing Tarika, you and doing thanks, that. Though. Thank that was you. Awesome, it was man. fun. You know, <clears throat> I was mm-hmm. very flattered. They reached out to me. Mike, mm-hmm. Mike uh, Tarico is an incredibly nice guy, yeah. and it was it's his first Olympics. I think he's done a great job. He's so, in that category where he can really call any sport. It's really I know. amazing. The versatility like of those people. Yeah, there's a few of them out there. Like, like that, I, yeah. I, Mike is is so you know I call them seamless yeah. uh, broadcasters. Mike is like that. Brian Gumble. I yeah. think Brian's yeah, like that. By the way, Brian Gumble. He's like the that. reason why I started watching the uh, Today Show. I, I remember I, I was going to share this with you. I don't know why. This is so ridiculous. My history of watching morning yeah. shows. But I remember as a kid watching Good Morning America in the 70s with, remember with, what's his name? Uh, David Hartman. David Hartman. Yes, I remember that show. It was so interesting because they were like, Good Morning America. I'm like, who are these people? Why are they saying that? <laughs> yeah. It seemed like such an odd thing. But I'll never forget when Brian Gumble started hosting that. For me, this kind of goes back to the LeBron thing and some of the other things. It was such a cultural moment. Mm -hmm. And I remember when he was a sports guy, because I'm from Los Angeles, and he did a high school basketball game at my local school once, and I knew the guys were playing. I'm like, we were like, Brian Gumbel's here, man. It was such such a cool thing, you know. And when he got the Today Show, it was huge. And really so important. That's you know, when the, I started the, watching the uh, Today Show because of that. An important cultural milestone, you know. It was huge, Jim. You think about that, and one of the reasons I actually went to anchor the CBS Evening News is I thought, you know, I want girls and boys yeah. and people in general to see that a woman could handle that job with competence and yeah. confidence and that sometimes this these images of what people see you know Gina Davis says if you can't see it you can't be it that yeah. they're they're so um there's such an important uh way to shape society and mm-hmm. to shape attitudes and values and I think Bryant similar you know probably much more so than me doing the evening news but that was a an incredibly important mm-hmm. uh, moment in broadcasting and for, for race in this country. Yes, and I'll never forget when he and Jane Polly saw the Pope. That right, was I remember that too. That was one of the more interesting moments in television to me because we never saw, this sounds silly today, but a black man and a white woman share an emotional moment. It wasn't a sexual moment, of course, but it was an emotional. I hope not. Well, yeah, who, who knows now? <laughs> you know, oh, no, we're telling, we're spilling some tea we never should have spilled, right? But, I mean, Jane Polly was America's, you know, girl, I guess you could say, or a woman, you know. Sweetheart. At that, sweetheart is the right term I was looking for. At that moment, you know, mm-hmm. she really was. Like, remember the, when you took over, remember how much fear there was over her leaving when right. poor Deborah Norba, right. for goodness sake, was crucified <laughs> just for just for taking a job. That was so insane. But well, that's they how much, sort of pushed yeah. Jane out, I think, a little with this yeah. ridiculous notion that she was getting too old. Yes. It's, what was she Isn't like? that something? 40 or something. It was yeah. ridiculous. But um, yeah. yeah, that 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 was a moment. But it was interesting. You know, I always remember Jane was the senior person. Yes. Bryant came in. Yes. And then Bryant 
Yes. See, this to me wasn't a good thing. Right. He became the dominant That's right. person on that show. And for women, yes. I thought, you know, why why is Jane okay being sort of subservient to Bryant in that right. role? Yeah. So when I got offered that job, I said to Michael Gartner, I would only take this job if it's a 50-50 division of labor. Yes. And that I am not sort of relegated to the cooking and fashion segment. That's great. You know, I cover the Pentagon. I want to do serious news. And don't give me this job if you're not going to let me do that. And it was your conversation with President Bush that really kind of lightning struck you. Well, you know, I was lucky because, you know, I remember Michael Gartner came back to me and said, well, how about 52-48? And I said— All right, I'll take it. Yes. But I was lucky because Jeff Zucker was a very big kind of proponent of, yes. of mine. And he helped ensure, this is why it's so important to have women in decision-making positions who right. can, you know, who aren't aren't just there as window dressing, who actually make the decisions. Yes. Because Jeff was very even-handed and made sure that I got good assignments in addition to Bryant. Mm-hmm. And, and that really made all the difference. Well, Katie, thanks so much for I being I feel like, my I, guest. gosh, I could talk to you all day, Larry. I know. It's, it's fun so much fun. Well, there's so you. many more things I want to talk about, but I, I know, you know, our time's limited here. Yeah, we'll, have to, we'll have to do it again. We'll would have you? part two. I would love I it. I would love to because— And I want to talk to you more about all your interesting projects with Issa and— I would love to. And I know. want you to get her on this podcast. Can you help Can you help a sister I'll out, do Larry? What, I'll do what I— <laughs> Hey, help. I'm always trying to help a sister out. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but America Inside Out is your new show, Yeah, it's Well, it's a six-hour documentary series that I'm doing for National Geographic. Yes. And um, I'm taking these big thorny issues. I love the, when with you the do that. the news cycle yeah. is so fast and furious that I don't think it's hard for anyone to take a step back mm-hmm. and talk about sort of what are the ramifications of this seismic, these seismic shifts we're witnessing all around us yeah. in terms of technology, in terms of kind of what's going on with class in America, mm-hmm. what's going on in terms of generationally of us sort of, is it sensitivity or is it censorship? How do you make an inclusive environment without stifling people who may not be a part of that ethos? And, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about uh, gender inequality and Hollywood and Silicon Valley, kind of these big Mm. kind of complicated thorny issues. And I'm just trying to unpack them in a way that's Mm -hmm. non-threatening that can help us sort of understand them. Who knows if it will, but I'm I'm giving it the old college try, no, Larry. But I love journalism that is investigative and curious rather than it always having to be about opinion. Mm-hmm. You know? And well, the other thing I'm doing right. is, which I think you might find really interesting, and I'm curious for your your perspective on this. Mm-hmm. I'm doing something on I was I went to the University of Virginia and I was in Charlottesville when that really mm. scary right white supremacy rally happened. And um, I'm doing a whole kind of examination of our memorial landscape. Mm-hmm. And some of the people that we have um, lionized uh, in statues and streets and schools yes, and trying to, to help that, people <laughs> understand what these symbols mean to mm-hmm. certain people. And, you know, trying to let I just think that in this bifurcated world, it's hard for us to see the perspective of someone who disagrees with us or feels differently. I mean, think of it like this, too, Katie. Like, um, 
like as a black person in America, I've always heard that black people need to get over slavery. You know, slavery ended like 150 years ago, whatever. Why can't you guys get over it? Now, slavery was something that was around for thousands of years. And, of course, in this continent, had a good couple of hundred years run. But the Confederacy lasted for four years. And yet no one is asked to get over that. You know, <laughs> that lasted for four years or however long it was. But there's statues to honor the Confederacy, which was a treasonous act, by the way, of of sedition, you know, leaving, you know, breaking off from the United States. No one is supposed to get over that. They're supposed to be able to lionize it and praise it and honor it and all that stuff. But the whole, <laughs> but slavery, I'm supposed to get over. You it's know? so interesting, yeah. you know, and Brian, and of course, the legacy of slavery continued long yeah. after the 13th Amendment. And Brian Stevenson, I interviewed him about his lynching project. You know, this whole chapter, this the ugliest, one of the darkest People don't chapters, understand what, what you're talking about right uh, now. Of, People of, have no idea what you're talking and, about and, right and, and so the yeah. Equal Justice Initiative mm-hmm. has a whole lynching um exhibit an effort he's he's got a memorial and it it he's he's an extraordinary person mm-hmm. he i admire him almost more than any person i have ever met in my life mm. he is so thoughtful and so eloquent and I, I, anyway I, I i kind of go through what mitch landrew did in new orleans mm-hmm. what happened in charlottesville changing the name of jeb stewart high school which was one of my rival high schools mm. in northern virginia and, you know, just un- helping people understand how how our history is recorded and remembered and who does the remembering. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I was sort of influenced by Howard Zinn, who, you know, my daughter studied in high school, which is, of course, the history from the viewpoint of the oppressed instead mm-hmm. of the oppressors. And just how we get such a limited understanding of history because of the people who have written the history books yes and the people who the powerful who gave their version of what happened so it's been really interesting and And i think even by having this discussion i'm hoping that people will will have an understanding that they have gotten a very limited perspective but ironically howard zinn is using as an example on the right of the unraveling of history and the loss of of tradition and these sorts of things and right. an attack on the country and all that. That's how Zen is looked at from the right. Right. I know. <laughs> so you can't. No, I you know. know. And I, you, you know, can't listen. Zen I, for losing. Hey, I, yeah, there's, come I, on, man. But I'm um, I think that, you know, you, and, and I also <laughs> think you can't please everyone. No, but you can't. all you can do is in a, in, in the best way you can try to, try to have come to a better understanding. I even don't want to, use the word truth because now everyone has their own truth mm-hmm. but that you that you approach things with kind of an open heart and an open mind and hope that as a result people will be will feel at least like they've learned something right that's all you can do right, i agree Larry? i think i agree katie and i think the first thing that we should do and i hope you join me in this is that we rename america wakanda are you with me <laughs> <laughs> and then we just we'll just see what happens. Yeah. We'll just see what happens. Good luck. Good luck with that. Okay, Larry. We'll see if that works. <laughs> Katie Kirk, thank you so much for being my guest, Black on the Air. Thank you.